The next time I see David Pizarro, I'm just going to punch him in the back of the head. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslet. Hello, everyone. Uh, pleasure to be here. And uh, we have a very special guest joining us today. Uh, today, with us live and in person, we have Jesse Single. He is a science journalist. Uh, he was the former editor of The Science of Us, which is uh, New York Magazine's behavioral science section, which is how I got to be familiar with his work. But he's also published lots of other places, uh, Atlantic, um, the New York Times, and uh, lots of other prestigious outlets. So we're very lucky to have Jesse with us in person here in Toronto today. Say hello. Hey guys, thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. How are you enjoying Toronto? It's good. Yeah, I'm here on a uh, a secret project we talked about off air. Uh, just a an article I'm working on. It's a it's a really cool city. It has like uh, feels a little bit like New York North. I'd say. Thanks for that backhanded compliment. <laughs> no, no, I meant that in a good way. More polite than New York and less trash. Yeah. Um, how are you enjoying our newly legal weed? So I haven't had a chance to partake yet. I a friend asked me to smuggle her back some edibles and uh i don't think i have the courage uh just up the butt man up. <laughs> do you guys mind if i do it jay right here go for it man all right because it's legal and fuck it i'm we're doing it on air here it's not really a jay a little bit of vapor so uh mickey do you want to introduce what we're drinking today or do you want to just like get high no i'm gonna be drinking some beers for sure First of all, let me just say, this has been, this week has been like euphoric for me. I know it's kind of silly for most people and, you know, they don't give a shit. You're, people have been smoking, you know, ingesting, uh, you know, cannabis uh, for a long time, whether it's legal or illegal, doesn't really matter. Um, but uh, I guess I never thought I would see the day when it was legal across the country. So it's kind of a big deal for me. Um, and mostly because... Um, I'm just tired of the hypocrisy. Uh, I just want to be open about it and not have to pretend. Uh, like I, for example, and this may be, uh, I shouldn't even admit, I've spoken to my kids about it, uh, which I, I don't think I would have done previously. I would have been like too scared, but they see shops in the streets, so they ask. So you're like coming out of the closet right now to, to all of our hundreds of thousands of listeners. <laughs> I think anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I'm, I, I'm, I'm definitely not in the closet. So uh, I don't think I'm like, I, I don't know if I can morally appear on this podcast anymore. This is pretty, <laughs> this pretty is bad there. company to be in. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So the beer. Uh, so yes, excited about weed. That's, that was a big one, but I'm also excited about this, this beer. Uh, this beer is from a brewer uh, called uh, Brasserie Dunham. So it's from Dunham. Quebec. Um, and the beer is called La Orange de Dunham. Uh, it's a strong beer, 6.5%. It uh, says here that it is uh, blended barrel-aged Flemish-inspired sour ale. Uh, so it's another sour beer. And it has uh, two distinctions. Uh, first, it's the most expensive beer I've ever bought. It's um, it would cost like $16 um, in, uh, you know, our LCBA, which is our kind of government-controlled uh, liquor board. Um, I bought this online. And the other notable thing is so when I bought this beer, um, unlike every other beer that I could have chosen, uh, where there's a little image, just, you know, kind of a picture of the label, the label on this one was blacked out. And I was thought, oh, maybe it was just some error or whatever. I, I'd read enough from other blogs um, knowing that this was a good beer, so I decided to order it anyways. 
it arrived a few days later, and now I realize why it was, you know, there was no label. It's because it's a rather provocative image of a redheaded woman, an, an orange, maybe a la orange is a, a French or Quebecois way of referring to a, um, a redheaded woman who is naked um, with orange hair, not just on her head. Um, and it's quite provocative, uh, this image. It's kind of like a Paul Gauguin, really kind of sensual, curvy uh, woman. Let's have a, let's have a look. Oh, yeah, you can see her pubes. I missed that, actually, the first time. You missed the pubes. I missed the pubes. Yeah, they're sort of tucked away down there. All right. Uh, where's mine? Cheers, everybody. Right, cheers. L'chaim, right? L'chaim. Three Jews, three beers? Three yeah, Jews. Three Jews, three beers. That's right. Oh, that's uh, mm. that's just really interesting. Um, it's got a kind of, I think, like a typical like uh, flavor for a sour, but I think like the, the back note, like the kind of the aftertaste is really different. It's really sharp, actually. I don't know your fancy beer talk, but I like it. So um, I, I think to start with, what, oh, you guys wanted to do your shots. Yeah. I, yeah. Shot of Jack. So, so, is, yeah. so you want to tell us why we're doing this, Jesse? Yeah, it's sort of silly. I've been, I've been on the road for almost a week now. And um, my main way I can afford living in Brooklyn as a journalist is we have a lot of bars there that have a shot and a beer for five or six dollars, which is by New York standards reasonable. Is shot and a beer like a thing here? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, it can good. be. All right. Well, yeah. Uh, so as an excuse to drink more and to fight burgeoning homesickness, uh, just for the record, Yoel is not doing a shot. He has driving due later, but, uh, no, it's not because he's driving. It's because, uh, Yoel is a pusillanimite is what he is. Yep. Pusillanimite. So, uh, you, you Jesse and I, cheers. Cheers. That was more than a shot. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> more than a shot. All right. Um, well, it went down well. Yum. Okay. So Mickey, I think you had uh, a paper that you wanted to discuss, no? I did. So, I mean, I think for uh, for the main part uh, of today's show, we'll be, we'll be chatting with Jesse about um, being a journalist, uh, t- covering a lot of science and co- covering a lot of uh, the replication issues, issues in psychology. Uh, so that'll be the main topic for today. But um, uh, we also thought it would be a fun idea to talk about a brand new paper that's, it's a paper that's in press, actually. A uh, paper that is authored by Victoria Spring, Daryl Cameron, and Mina Chikara. Um, a paper uh, in press at Trends in Cognitive Sciences. And the paper is called The Upside of Outrage. And I think it's an interesting paper. It's really short uh, and makes a provocative out, uh, a pr- provocative argument. Um, and given the title, the argument is that, you know, hey, outrage isn't all, isn't all that bad. And in fact, there, it might be quite good. Um, and uh, the essential argument here is that if you take a look at the way outrage is discussed, uh, by the lay public, uh, but especially the way it's even discussed by, you know, uh, researchers, you know, uh, uh, in moral psychology, uh, it seems like outrage is, is, has a really bad name. It's, it seems to have uh, all these negative properties. So um, outrage, and I think uh, it's defined here as, um, you know, anger at violation of one's subjective moral standards. That, that, that's what outrage is. Um, uh, so, uh, so outrage is associated with, you know, uh, all kinds of um, maybe extreme forms of punishment. Punishment. Um, so people um, uh, who feel outraged will kind of be less generous, will be less empathic towards uh, people who commit uh, some sort of violation. Um, and uh, that's contrasted with, of course, just taking a more reasoned, uh, rational approach and kind of judging someone's actions based on their actions and not necessarily the, the, the emotions that spring up as you respond to their actions. So outrage can, can lead to an extremity of judgment uh, and lead to a kind of vilification and dehumanization 
demonization of someone. So those are the kind of, that's one of the main things, uh, the main negatives that uh, that moral outrage leads to. And and really the point of, of this article is to say yes, you know the authors uh, you agree there are these negative consequences, but there are also positive consequences. And the main one they discuss is that it can um, lead to collective action. And it can ask, and especially lead to collective action uh, among people who maybe don't have enough power, uh, people who might not have a voice otherwise. And by expressing outrage, they can maybe uh, uh, generate a following, uh, generate you know sympathy for their cause more than their numbers might suggest. So that could actually have a positive consequence and lead, um, in some ways, to. Uh, to the correction of, let's say, uh, injustice. But it's provocative, I think, because, um, of course, I think we all have this kind of knee-jerk response that moral outrage is a bad thing and, and we should all kind of look at things um, uh, more rationally. Uh, yeah, Jesse, what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, it, it actually had me think a lot about Jonathan Haidt and this idea that, especially when we were living in smaller groups and smaller communities and the sense of shared morality was more important, you could see um, outrage and outrage modules in our brain or whatever, for lack of a better term, evolving for that reason and and serving important purposes. I think these days, the internet has sort of like distorted and warped everything. And a lot of impulses that are otherwise good get blown way out of proportion. And and maybe the way to think about this is um, another thing we evolved is we're attracted to fatty food. And that that evolutionary feature kept us alive because it drew us to food we wanted to eat. And for most of our history, we were f- scrapping just to survive. That wasn't a problem. These days, half you know, a lot of us are overweight because there's such an abundance of food to eat. And I think something similar is going on with outrage. And and it made me less than fully sympathetic to this paper because like there, are, if you go on Twitter right now, any of us could go on Twitter and find twenty things to be disproportionately pissed off about. And it tends to be disproportionate. Like I've I've felt this in myself. Some idiot says something dumb and you're mad about it for 20 minutes and it's just some random wacko. So is it true that outrage can be used for good ends? Of course. Like if you're outraged, someone murdered a kid that can help bring him to justice. But it just strikes me as maybe a weird time to be like, we should focus on the positives because the positives seem somewhat trivial to me. And it also seems trivially true that the world is not lacking for outrage right now. Yeah. So I I guess what you're pointing to is that it it can be, or it often is, I guess you're saying, disproportionate. Yeah. I guess the question is, like, could we come up with all that many examples of problems that aren't being solved now due to a lack of outrage? And to me, the only examples I can come up with are things that just aren't widely known enough. Like, uh, this is going to make me sound like a real left-winger Brooklynite, but, like, people, I don't think people fully understand the extent to which, like, the super wealthy have captured the U.S. government and make policy on issues like taxes. And I mean, we saw this with the Trump tax stuff from a few weeks ago. They just don't pay taxes. That to me is a kind of example where maybe if more people knew about it, there'd be more outrage. But at the end of the day, like, I don't, I think the lack of outrage is secondary to that and a lot of other problems. I think A, not enough people know about it. B, even if they did, it just has to do with the contours of power. Like Syria is a great example. Endless, endless outrage at what Assad has done and at this world historic catastrophe. Um, it doesn't do anything because it just power works in very specific ways and certain people do and don't make certain decisions. And, and that's that. So I guess, yeah. I mean, can you guys think of an instance in which a, there isn't enough outrage over something and B you think that outrage itself would solve the problem? What about me too? I thought I'd ask like a really tough stumper and then you immediately (laughs) Me too is a good example because I think a lot of these stories hadn't come out and, and especially with Weinstein, you read the full details of it and 
just the sheer horror of it, that could be a case of that emotion turning into something useful. Screw you, Yoel. <laughs> well, I have another example. First of all, I agree with you. I think I think I think me too. That's a great example. Um, another example that might be closer. Well, not closer, but but I think really close to our hearts, Yoel and I, and maybe you too, Jesse. Um, I think we one can make an argument that the replication movement would not be making the strides it has. The, 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 it, you know, it wouldn't be as acceptable uh, among even like mainstream journals nowadays if there wasn't outrage and also outrage online. Um, I think it's the fact that you had a few, at, at the beginning at least, loud, maybe obnoxious people, you know, screaming, uh, shaming, uh, definitely expressing outrage, um, that it got other people, you know, to see, seeing that and then realizing they agree. And then, you know, a movement built and... Uh, you know, more, more and more people supported it. Before you know it, power brokers are now paying attention. They're changing policy. And five years later, six years later, whatever it is, um, we're now at a point where, like, some of the mo most important journals in our field have, have changed dramatically in, in, in the kinds of things they accept. Yeah, although I think that's a great example of outraged as a, a double-edged sword because I think a lot of people feel that currently it's counterproductive that many people have an idea of like the open science movement or, you know, people talk about like open science bros. Remember they came up in our last episode, like these dudes are going to yell at you online and they're going to be jerks about it. And it's really unfair. And they're singling out people who are, you know, vulnerable in some way. So, I mean, I agree. Like, I, I think to get things started, you do need that. Uh, I think you can make an argument that currently that's not what we need like for that specific case right that it's actually counterproductive now because it's turning people off i think this is a good illustration of my problem both with this this piece and um we uh we had a response to it that's a like a working paper shared with us um from uh bill brady and molly crockett uh so thanks to them for for giving us uh, permission to talk about this on air um and and their response piece was like, yeah, but look, outrage has these bad consequences, right? And the, my problem is that like with the current status of our science, like you just can't make scientific claims about when is outrage good versus bad. It's just too complicated, right? And obviously the answer is like, Jesse, I think you were getting at this. Yeah, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not. And I don't know that like the empirics add anything there, right? We're falling back to our like intuitions or observations or like, I don't think you can scientifically using current behavioral science answer this question of like, you know, when should people be outraged versus not? When is it helpful versus not? It's also such a values issue that you're just going to run into that over and over again. Like I, I reported on a story of a woman who was driven from her home because she did, um, a really bad failed joke about a, a sheriff's deputy who was shot and killed. Uh, she was like a black lives matter person. Breitbart blew her up. Everyone's mad at her. She has to flee her home from death threats. And, how bad an infraction she committed is totally a matter of your values. I think very few people would defend sending her death threats, but there were commenters on the piece who were like, well, she shouldn't have made fun of a dead cop, which me, because of my politics, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to anyone who dies in line of duty, but I understood the joke she was making because I'm sympathetic to her politics. So I think so many outrage stories come down to unanswerable value questions of which behaviors merit outrage. Yeah, so both those pieces read to me a little bit like statements of values within some like empirical window dressing. And you know, our findings are flexible enough. And 
And legitimately for something like anything as complicated as a moral emotion where you're able to find both positive and negative things about it, you can say evidence suggests outrage associated with these bad things. Evidence suggests outrage associated with these good things. It's like you're not really adding a lot, in my opinion, by talking about the research. You might as well just come out and make the, you know, the moral argument. But okay, one 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 point that that, that the authors uh, make, uh, so the original authors, uh, this is this would be um, again, uh, sp- you know, sp- Spring, Cameron, and Shakara, um, is uh, they say that at least the scientific study of outrage is one sided at the moment. It's only looking at the negatives, right? Uh, they're they're saying you know there are also positives. Your critique is going to hold for the negatives as well. Right, so that's already happening. We're already just, you know, looking at how uh, anger, outrage has all these negative consequences. They're saying, "Hey, let's, you know, uh, rebalance and, you know, uh, and look at some of the, the positives too." Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Well, although actually, let me just to continue name dropping social psychologists. Like one of the whole points of Paul Bloom's book was um, empathy, which I think is often tightly interwoven with outrage can lead us to like really miscalculate things like we'll hear about one you know to take a tragic example a kid who dies of some rare disease that actually doesn't afflict that many people and then 50 million dollars is raised to fight this rare disease most of which won't be used so in that case you know you could say there's outrage over underfunding for that disease or outrage over deck safety when someone dies because the debt collapses and that misdirects us. So I just, I think even in cases where it seems to be positive, like there's so often uh, overshoot and overreaction that it's tricky. Yeah. So maybe it just, you know, focuses you on issues that some people want you to pay attention to, but whether they are like truly important is not clear. That's again, it's a value issue. Yeah. Okay. So um, have we done this paper justice? Uh, well, I, I wonder if the original authors will, will think so. Yeah, I, I don't know. I Well, I guess maybe we'll hear from um, the authors, although I'm sure they have better things to do than to listen to our podcast. We're back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. Uh, so the best way to reach us is generally Twitter, even though I'm not really on it anymore, but Mickey's still on it all the time. So at four beers, you can DM us. Our DMs are open. So uh, whether we follow you or not, we'll get that DM. Uh, or that is Mickey Will. If you'd rather email, um, you can email fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That goes to Have you given up email, you will? I would love to give up email, actually. Once I get tenure, I'm giving up email. Um, wait, shit. I should say if I get tenure, that was like, <laughs> that was a jinx. Um, okay. So, uh, where, where was I? Uh, right. Uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Our website as always is 
fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can check out our uh, past episodes as well. We love to hear from our listeners. It is what makes this worth doing, so please do not hesitate to get in touch, even if it is to yell at us for having gotten something wrong. Or Mickey, being high on air, for example. Or, or for that, exactly. But you know what, listeners? It's Shabbos here. It's Friday night for us. I've, I've had a fucking hard two, three weeks, um, and I want to let go. Yeah, Mickey has had to do actual work over the past two weeks, and it has not agreed with him at all. <laughs> I hate when that happens. <laughs> the worst. I want to sing a theme, Yuel. Okay, so yes, it's true. Although I haven't done it in a while, um, I make fun of Yuel for not drinking enough beer. That's a, that's a, uh, that's like a recurrent theme. But I'm noticing something else here, Yuel, is that you are now... Uh, this is the third or fourth time you're now stating that and work very hard. Truth hurts, man. <laughs> I deny it. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to do your shot or what's going on here? Uh, we're doing another shot because, uh, you know, Jesse, Jesse bought a Mickey of uh, Jack Daniels. So we're going to finish it up. Yep. Let's do it. Cheers. L'chaim. Okay. That was actually the right amount. All right. So let's, um, let's just, dive right into the the main thing we want to talk about here. So um I have a I have a list of questions um and I'm going to run through them in order uh because that is how you do an interview, yep. right? Yeah. I can right. confirm that. <laughs> the professional approves. Um so yeah, I guess the first thing I'm curious about is is how do you actually get into science writing? Um it is I'm told uh, a lucrative and rewarding field yep. that uh perhaps many of our listeners would be interested in in how you uh got to where you are today. Yeah. I mean, I should emphasize, I pull in eight figures most years. Uh, yeah. Journalism right now, particularly print journalism, is just through the roof. Uh, no, I. so I've sort of always been a little bit of a writer. In college, I wrote, uh, I went to two colleges. I went to Brandeis, I transferred to the University of Michigan, always had a column, usually wrote on uh, just the most awful college columns about how controversial subjects, George W. Bush is bad. Uh, gay marriage is good because back then that was like a fight we were still having. Um, I don't think anything I wrote back then was particularly interesting. I wrote for uh, like uh, the Every Three Weekly, which is an onion knockoff at Michigan, uh, the Gargoyle. I did humor writing. I never really had that strong a sense of what I wanted to do, but I sort of did what you do if you think you want to be a journalist, which is I did some unpaid internships after college. And I, I everyone knows, especially just emphasize the extent to which journalism has awful class problems. Like I benefited so hugely just from the contacts and experience of these unpaid internships. And if, if I'd come from a poor family, I wouldn't have been able to do them. And I don't know, it's something like journalists keep talking about, but no one really addresses it, especially because the whole field is in free fall, but it, it really affects what gets covered and what doesn't. But I'm outraged. Yeah, I can tell. And outrage, I forget, did we set outrage is good or bad from us? Uh, it's, it's both. Okay. Well, I'm happy and or sad you're outraged. Anyway, I, um, yeah, so I ended up at, um, couple DC publications, went to the Boston Globe. Something sort of like switched in me. I got less and less interested in just saying like, this is the right opinion and more interested in why people have what I view as the wrong opinions. And I do think John Hyde's book, The Righteous Mind, had a big impact on me on that front. Um, my sense is there there are some people who think he got certain things wrong and that other research has sort of supplanted him. And I, I, I'm not fully caught up on that, but his model of how to understand how people could disagree on things like gay marriage or abortion had a really big impact on me. And it, it made me more interested in those questions, in political psychology, basically. So I think political psychology was sort of my way into all this. And I realized I didn't, I didn't want to just be an opinion writer. I wanted to have a sort of more 
general education and be able to write longer and more in-depth pieces. And I, I randomly ended up going to public policy school. Um, I just, I got really lucky and I got into a school that would, would fund it for a couple of years. The, the way I ended up actually being a science journalist was I was at a coffee shop in Berlin trying to figure out what I was going to do after this fellowship I was on, a Bosch fellowship. And I randomly saw that New York Magazine was launching a social science vertical, which is like mana from heaven like it was exactly the kind of thing i wanted to do just for those uh, uh listeners who are not in uh media what is a vertical <laughs> a vertical is like it's a site basically like you could say yeah it's sort of a douchey word so a website science vertical is like the section that deals with science basically and it's vertical just because you scroll down it's sort of like a blog but usually with articles not just blog posts cool um, yeah so it, it just, I got really lucky. I, I was going home anyway for a wedding. Um, I interviewed for this job at New York Magazine and I got it. And I sort of had this experience of working from scratch to build a psychology focused site and to figure out, you know, what good coverage would look like. And it was, for the first part, it was just me and Melissa Dahl, who is like incredibly talented and has since she wrote a book about awkwardness and has done great stuff. So yeah, I, we just, it was there were only two of us at first, but it was just like really good to work with her. And yeah, we built a, a site I was really proud of. And it taught me a lot about sort of the pressures uh, on journalists because, I mean, the model, unfortunately, is a lot of journalists will just read press releases and write up st stories based on that. And I think pretty early on, we realized you're just going to get tricked over and over because unfortunately, you cannot trust university press releases. They're incredibly misleading. So yeah, I mean that's that's the short version. It, it it was a really good experience, and I ended up being at New York Magazine for um three years, and I left to to write the book I'm working on. You just touched on this one issue, which I I, I find astounding I, as someone who's like really naive uh, about these issues, um, and that is that you know you're taught not to purely trust press releases, which I think is makes eminent sense. Of course, I mean that's one perspective. You've got to have multiple perspectives. And that is just not basic common knowledge. That's not like something that, you know, everyone would know uh, in journalism school, a journalist period. No, I mean, I mean, for one thing, most journalists don't go to journalism school. Um, even if you do, I'm not sure you get that level of specialized training. Also, like I, so my public policy degree, I learned the basics of statistics and I learned how to read a regression table. If I hadn't had that knowledge, I think I would have had very little framework to edit and write the way I wrote and edited. I also, like I said, Melissa was is similarly like desires to write about the stuff in a rigorous way. If I'd had a sort of less competent partner in this stuff, a lot of stuff had to work right, including institutional support and not, I think when we first launched a site, we were going to write something like eight or 10 posts a day. And to their credit, when we were like, that's, we're not going to do good work at that. They let us scale it back a little bit, but any science journalist at any publication these days, is going to have time pressure. And, and and I get what you're saying, that it seems like naive to not know you shouldn't trust the university press release. But like, think of the average person. You hand them a sheet of paper that says this is from Harvard University. We discovered that, I'm trying to think of like a, a replication crisis error example. Babies who eat one saltine rather than two have a 200 point higher SAT score the average person is going to say, holy shit, that's incredible. I can't believe what Harvard discovered because they don't they don't know any of this stuff, nor and they shouldn't. Who knows about replication crisis stuff? Hardly anybody. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm reluctant to blame the journalists too much here because I think a lot of Thank it... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said that when there hasn't been a journalist in the room even. 
as the industry has collapsed and contracted and as behavioral sciences has really gone mainstream and become hip, it's much more likely that the person pressured to write up that press release will be a 24-year-old who has no real science writing training. And this has been a problem. I mean, I could go on forever about this. There are so many areas where the journalism is terrible and the people reporting, often through no fault of their own, just don't really know what they're doing and don't know how to report effectively on the thing they're reporting on. And that has fueled the replication crisis because the replication crisis exists partly because all these crappy studies got pressed and got written up in major outlets. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when you go to public policy school, they ask you to think about incentives and you can become sort of an incentive head where all you see anywhere is incentives. Like it can explain the whole world. But I do think as a first approximation, understanding incentives, you know, gets you most of the way there to understanding how stuff happens. Yeah, look, I mean, I think in the end, you get what you're willing to pay for. Um, and there's just less and less money, right? Um, so if you're paying, like you said, a 24-year-old to crank out as many posts as possible in a day, like, are they going to be able to carefully vet? Like, even if they had the training to do it, they wouldn't have the time to do it, right? Right. And it's not just that. It's um, what gets attention. Like, like think of the, um, not to beat up on Amy Cuddy, like we were talking about <laughs> data thugs or whatever, but um, if you actually read that study, there's a lot of stuff to be questionable about. And you know, if two journalists wrote it up, one said, there's this amazing new thing called power posing. Wow. Look what this could mean. And another one said, eh, this looks pretty like, looks like P hacking. It's kind of suspicious. Oh, usually whoever delivers the more straightforward, either enthusiasm or outrage communicating message will get more clicks. Yeah. The ecosystem rewards clickbaity stuff. Yep. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, that you're currently working on a book. Do you want to tell us a little about that? Yeah, it's um it's provisionally titled The Quick Fix and it's basically about how in a lot of different areas usually stemming from psychological science society has sort of like clamped down on some simple idea to solve a complicated problem. Uh one of them that I've written about is the implicit association test. This idea a that you can have someone sit down and have their level of implicit racism or bias accurately measured in 5 or 10 minutes. B that that can be used to address societal racism or address societal discrepancies. And, you know, the the world of science and the nonprofit world and the diversity training world have all gone crazy over this idea because it's so simple and catchy and sexy. So my book is about instances like this where simple seeming ideas sort of take over and attract more attention they deserve. Uh, yeah, that's the short version. So you think that the, uh, the race IAT is symptomatic of a broader trend? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I think... Humans have a short attention span, and so many of the problems we want to solve are incredibly complicated to solve. So if someone comes across with a catchy solution, it's, it's pretty seductive. And another example I talk about is the self-esteem craze of the 80s and 90s, where people with uh, impressive letters after their name were genuinely claiming that if you could just improve people's self-esteem, you would reduce crime, you could save the environment, you could you know, reduce uh, achievement gaps in education all of which we know is is not true, but it's just it's so much easier to just focus on a mantra or in a couple sentences or a sexy finding than to actually solve the problems you're trying to solve, given how complicated it is to solve those problems. Yeah. So one interesting thing about that to me is like, I feel like you hear a lot about these days, the death of expertise and you don't listen to experts anymore and people just like make up their own reality, their own facts or whatever. And it feels like what you're saying is like people shouldn't listen to the experts either. Um, so, I, I mean, do you do you feel that tension at all, or how do you uh, what do you do about that? Uh, 
you know, it's like earlier, we're saying outrage is sometimes good, sometimes bad. It evolved for a purpose. I think the concept of expertise evolved for a purpose. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. Overall, you just got to take it case by case. The the probability that the whatever percent of climate scientists who believe in anthropogenic climate change are wrong is is almost nil. Like that's, but you know why it's almost nil? You need it would take a while to explain that. IAT has been uh, evangelized by experts with similar credentials, albeit a smaller number of them. To know why they happen to be wrong about that would similarly require a lengthy explanation. So I think it's hard. Uh, I feel like I'm making people not want to buy the book because there's always like it's complicated on the other hand. But that's sort of the point. Like with, with expertise, you you can't just say that person's an expert. I should or shouldn't trust them. It, it's so context dependent. Well, so as a science consumer, um, let's say that you don't have training in statistics or research methods or any of that stuff. How do you tell? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think. <clears throat> I think everyone can be on the lookout for for bold claims made when there's only like a study or two to support them um, or small sample size studies or university press releases that claim to be able to solve a really complicated problem in a simple way, because that's hardly ever the case. I mean, there there are exceptions like (laughs) once we discovered antibiotics, we did, in fact, solve a huge class of horrible problems. That's, That's the exception rather than the norm. So I think I don't know the average everyday Science consumers should just be skeptical in general and understand that most problems are more complicated than a simple solution allows. Um, so I, I find your thesis uh, fascinating. Um, so essentially, the, the, the thesis of your book is that um, we as humans are attracted to simple solutions, uh, but the world does not present us with simple problems. My sense is the general trend in our heads is that ideas that are simple and straightforward and feel intuitively right are more likely to be remembered, to be transmitted, to spread. When you think about how complicated it is to describe even a basic problem like achievement gaps in education in the U.S., that that's not something you can fit in most people's heads or it'll take a while for it to stick. If, on the other hand, I said, I came up with this uh, psychological instrument that measures grit, which is how much a kid tries hard and sticks to a problem, you can understand, like intuitively, why that has more appeal. You know, that's another subject I write about where I don't think there's much evidence that differences in grit can actually account for outcomes in education or in life, you know, life outcomes. And it just it feels so simple and neat and tidy. And I do think our brains are attracted to simple, neat and tidy because isn't a lot of what the brain does just filter the cacophony of information around us like that. If we didn't have that capability, we wouldn't be able to survive and reproduce. Okay, I just want to clarify a little bit. Uh, so, grit for sure has been criticized for for, for reasons. Um, I, want, I think the main reason, in fact, is that it's duplicating something else. It's duplicating conscientiousness. Conscientiousness, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, conscientiousness does, in fact, predict quite a bit, right? So, in, in a way, it is kind of a simple explanation. I think that uh, that does explain actually, or it predicts quite a bit actually. Well, I think Angela. Duckworth, well, okay, she is more honest than other people in in mentioning where there's a lack of research. But if you read her book, you would really come across thinking, if we could just increase kids' conscientiousness, we could make a big uh, impact on these education gaps and outcome gaps. And I think so much more goes into those gaps than differences in grit or conscientiousness that I'm skeptical of that. I also don't think it's ever been shown 
that there's a way to reliably increase people's grit or conscientiousness. So that's what I mean when I say presenting it as a relatively simple explanation. It's not just the correlation. It's the idea that you can manipulate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it seems like there's a a little bit of a a common theme of like this, uh, these simple stories, they all seem to be kind of individual focused, right? If we could get people to do this thing differently, if we could train them to do this thing better. Um, And there seems to be a sort of a system neglect, right? Like what's the bigger system that might be causing um, these outcomes that we don't like. Is that, would you agree with that? Yeah. And that, that's sort of one of the the secondary theses of the book is that the whole quick fix problem, part of it is just human nature, but part of it I think is uniquely American. Like we, we have a society that's very focused on individuals. I also, this is the harder argument to make, and I know people are going to contest it um, and because it just can't be proven empirically. I think part of the reason a lot of bad, sloppy social psychology and TED Talk stuff has arisen when it when it came up is our political system is in shambles and, and it has shown no ability to solve serious societal problems for a while now, like for decades. The, you know, the biggest real modern reform improvement was probably Obamacare, which was limited. And even that was met with fierce backlash. So I think when you have a really stagnant economic system and you have political dysfunction, people are probably drawn even more than usual to these quick fixes because politicians can't solve it. And then, you know, here's a telegenic Harvard psychologist on stage at a TED talk. Maybe that can solve it. Maybe we can just target individuals and improve individuals. So I think some of these temptations are are particularly and uniquely American, even if they draw on just human nature. Yeah. So that suggests that this stuff should be less popular in like, let's say, Western Europe. Yeah, it does. And I, you know, I don't have any comparative information on that. I do know in places like Western Europe or Canada where rich countries where people are less likely to be like one broken leg away from bankruptcy or one sick kid away from bankruptcy, I I do think it would cause you to prioritize things differently and maybe fall for schemes and, and cons less. And America is like a land of schemes and cons. We look who we elected president, like fraudsters are are in our national DNA. And what I'm saying is a little bit of an oversimplification. There are a lot of reasons we, we've we always fallen for fraudsters. But yeah, I think some of this comes back to the fact that like we're just we're a country that makes life a lot harder for people than it needs to be. You mentioned uh, the IAT and, and specifically uh, the race IAT yep. uh, as one example of, um, I guess, quick fix social science that hasn't lived up to the the promises that were made about it. So say a little more about what you think is wrong with the race IAT and the way that it's talked about. Sure. Um, the the creators of the test, Tony Greenwald and Mazarin Banaji, wrote a book where they said, a, you know, we're confident that this this test measures implicit bias and that implicit bias is in many cases more important than explicit bias. And they, you know, they've made other statements about how implicit bias could explain a great deal of racial discrepancies in the U.S., discrepancies in outcomes. And none of this has, some of this is unproven, like it hasn't even been tested. And a lot of it has just been shown to be false. Like the the best meta-analyses we have of the connection between the IAT and even sort of canned contrived situation lab behavior, it accounts for very little of the variance. I think the best estimate we have is something like 1%. The test doesn't really predict anything at the individual level. And what's frustrating is um, 
they they have sort of admitted that like in at least one quote they said we acknowledge in one paper they said we acknowledge it shouldn't be used to measure individual levels of propensity for bias but then in media appearances they continue to say you should use it like that and it just it doesn't do what they claim it does and that's the fundamental problem it doesn't it doesn't measure an individual's propensity to commit acts of bias okay so i think that's a very fair criticism but um many tests in psychology are built not necessarily at the individual level and by that i mean they don't they don't work that well at the individual level, um, but they do work at the aggregate level. So I'm just going to give you one example, which actually relates to a previous example we just talked about, which is conscientiousness. Okay, not great conscientiousness. Conscien, you know, if you want to succeed, if you want to succeed in life, have kids. You know, if you want your children to, to, to succeed in life, hopefully they're high in IQ and conscientiousness. All right, and now. But just because you're high in IQ or conscientiousness does not mean you as any one individual will do better in life. In fact, you could do worse in life. Um, but on average, if you're smarter and harder working, um, you will do better in life. Um, and maybe the idea is similar. So I cannot diagnose uh, UL or you or myself. But um, as a group of us, let's say in the city of Toronto or in Canada or North America uh, or, you know, regions within, within there, we can make reasonable predictions uh, based on aggregate scores. So, I mean, that's good. I mean, that's, these are some of the best tests we have. Uh, I mean, IQ and conscientiousness. I'm not saying IQ, uh, the IT is like that, but it does predict at the aggregate. So that's important, no? You're saying the IIT predicts at the aggregate? Yes. What does it predict? So predict, you know, uh, for example, worse criminal convictions or uh, punishment or, you know, to be honest, I don't know exactly. Yeah. So I, I think I'm a I'm a little bit skeptical. I think if you guys you guys are critical readers of papers, I think if you actually dug up those papers, my experience has been there's a little bit less there than meets the eye. But it, I think that's partly a moot point because of the way it's been advertised. A big part of my critique is they said you, an individual who wants to know about your level of bias, can take this test. And then there's this whole subgenre of stories, of anecdotes, of people taking the test and having this powerful emotional reaction to it. And in any other situation in clinical psychology, if I developed an instrument that elicits a powerful emotional reaction, but doesn't actually predict anything about the individual at the individual level, that's usually considered unethical. Like, you're not supposed to do that. You're Because... It's just weird to for them to have to now pull back from these grand claims they've made about the test. The, by the emotional reactions, you mean something like um, someone takes a test, they have an idea about how they're like, that they get like, oh my god, I'm I'm deeply deeply racist right yeah. now. Yeah, you're right. And that and that I I genuinely think it's unethical. In the same way, if you gave someone a crappy uh, depression test and it told them they were suicidal but there was evidence that the test doesn't actually predict suicidality. Like, that's not good. That's not what clinical, that's not what psychology is supposed to do. Well, sorry, can I jump in here? It can't be the case that it's predictive at the aggregate level and it is entirely not diagnostic at the individual level. That's just statistically impossible, right? So like you could say it's extremely noisy at the individual level such that you have very low confidence in the way it's classifying any given individual, but it has to be somewhat informative about an individual in order at the aggregate to predict anything, right? Sure. I'm I'm using a little bit of shorthand here. If let's say the most recent meta-analyses are right and it accounts for 1% of the variance in 
quote unquote racist behavior in lab settings. I say quote unquote because sometimes what they're measuring is like how close you sit to a black confederate. Like a lot of these studies are just really questionable. To me, if it measures 1% of the outcomes in those settings, that's close enough to not measuring individual behavior that you can say it doesn't measure individual behavior, especially individual behavior in the real world, which has barely been tested in the IIT and is what people care about the most. Yeah, so is that is that actually sort of smushing together two things? So one issue is just the uh, statistical reliability, right? So like if you, I give you the same IIT twice on consecutive days, um, what's the correlation between those scores? Um, and my impression is that it's not great, right? It's not particularly- It's bad. It's yeah. not just not great. It's like well below what's accepted for other kinds of uh, psychometric instruments. Right. And then a, a separate question is, given that low level of reliability, is it at all valid in predicting actual behavior, right? So you could, you can imagine um, a test that's quite reliable but doesn't validly predict actual behavior, right? Um, now it's tough to have validity without reliability, um, right? So, it, in your opinion, there's uh, no evidence for uh, a link between at the aggregate level uh, race IIT scores and and actual racist behavior, or just it's very weak? I would say it's, my understanding is it's pretty weak. This is not an issue I looked into, like, uh, with the same level of detail or obsessiveness as the individual uh, question. And and to me, it would be a major victory if they would just fully retreat from their claim that it means something profound and meaningful for the individual. Uh, yeah, I'm open to the possibility to predict something at the aggregate level, but I'm sh I just think you'll, for a lot of these most important outcomes, you will be able to find stronger correlates in explicit measures or income. You know, it depends on the thing being measured. Yeah. So your complaint really is about the way that it's been marketed as a way to gain insight into your own level of bias. Yeah. I mean, that that's my biggest complaint because I, I, I again, like, I've never heard a good answer, and I'm open to you guys providing one, for, for why it's ethical to present it the way it's being presented. It's not being presented like, oh, this test can explain 1% of your hypothetical variance in a lab racism exercise. It, it's being presented much more boldly than that. And again, the these stories about people having like intense emotional reactions, including the test takers themselves, talking about how eye-opening it was for them to get their scores. I just think it's a really questionable way to do science communications. Uh, I mean... It's kind of hard for me a little bit because I, I feel I also feel an instinctive like uh, critique of the IIT because I feel it's been oversold and I, I yeah. guess I get um, my back gets up when that happens like why why are you pushing so hard um, so it's hard for me to be in a position to, in a position to defend the IIT but it seems like at least at the aggregate level, it predicts things. I'm, I have an article right now written by uh, Keith Payne, uh, Laura Niemi, and John Doris in the Scientific Amer in Scientific America, and they wrote a blog post about this. Um, and uh, they write here that uh, you know, for example, metro areas with greater average implicit bias have larger racial disparities in police shootings, and counties with greater average implicit bias have larger racial disparities in infant health prediction uh, problems. Yeah, but look, that's—I'm uh, sorry—that's terrible evidence, right? Like, there's no. 
th there's all sorts of possible third variables yeah, that exactly. are right. Like it, the implication is that it's causal, and I don't see any good reason to think that it's causal. You'd need to know if they, if they um, controlled for things like uh, political party. Like so, there's a correlation between IAT and political party. If they didn't control for that, I, you could see more Republican areas are more likely to have more. You know, that's just a hypothetical example, but um. I don't. I don't want to do that thing where I'm automatically discounting the, the study I'm not familiar with or making up excuses. I think part of the reason I'm skeptical is because the original claims were so oversold, and so much of the test popularity stems from those bold individual claims. Okay, so what would you be comfortable with then? So, I mean, okay, one thing that is reliable uh, is that, on average, whites in in the United States of America. Uh, show a bias. They yep. show this thing consistently. I mean, that's incredibly robust. Yep. Right? I mean, that is that just random? Is that an accident or is that something? No, I think it could be something. But, I, you know, as I mentioned in the article, other, uh, other research shows that these implicit associations in our head might not always have sort of a negative valence to them. Like, it, it could be, in some cases, people who are more aware of the existence of a stereotype score highly as a result. So it could be part of the black-white gap is like it's capturing something that's actual implicit bias, but in other cases it's capturing awareness. The tests, like the different iterations of it, have been uh, built so sloppily that things like cognitive reaction, like uh, cognitive speed, correlates with your IIT score. So like just someone with a slower cognitive processing speed is viewed as more racist. There's just so many different confounds and possible alternative explanations. Yeah, these are pretty heavy charges, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, and I think Yoel and I, we're the least equipped social psychologists to defend the IAT. <laughs> that is true. Um, have uh, Greenwald and Benaji dialed back their claims at all? They haven't. They haven't. I mean, I, they've they've stated in print it shouldn't be used at the individual level. But I, I wrote an article about how Greenwald then emailed the reporter and said, yeah, they measure individual bias. So they've they they've been a little bit squirrely on this. Are you persuaded at all by the argument that like, OK, yeah, the test retest reliability is really low. Nonetheless, like most white Americans are going to score as being uh, biased in favor of white people over black people, right? So as a sort of a teaching tool to illustrate that, um, is it at all useful? No, because if I give you uh, the example I use in my articles, if I give you a test of depression and I return, you're suicidally depressed. And I say, okay, you're not suicidally depressed. I just want to raise awareness and education about depression. I think you'd scoff at that because because I'm doing something irresponsible and I'm making claims that aren't backed up. I think implicit bias is is real and it's probably responsible for, for some percentage of various race divides, but there are more accurate, responsible ways to teach people about it than to put them through this individual test that, again, the the creators of the test themselves have said shouldn't be used for individual diagnostic purposes. So uh, I'm conscious of getting you out of here on time so that you can catch your basketball game. I'm going to ask you... <laughs> <laughs> we don't endorse that. We're for the what, what's our team again? Uh, the the um, dinosaurs. Yep. Yeah. The, the raptors. The T Rexes. Yeah. The raptors. So so yeah, I'm going to selfishly ask you one more question, um, which is about social media. So this is something that uh, Mickey and I have spent some time talking about that I've been interested in. Uh, so you you are on Twitter these days or not? Yeah, I am. Too much. Yeah. So. Uh, you and you have taken a Twitter break before. I remember that happening. So I'm curious, like, what uh, you know? Do you think is it good for you? Are you on it because you have to be? Like, what's the story? 
Um, I think I'm addicted to Twitter. That it's bad for every element of my mental health. I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm fine. <laughs> As you guys can see, I'm incredibly happy and successful. You look very cheerful. Incredible. Uh, I think overall, it's bad for my mental health, productivity. I think it's an addiction for me, and especially a lot of other journalists. At the end of the day, I do think it has helped me build an audience. I think it'll hopefully help me sell a few books. I like the, you know, the dick jokes, the memes. Um, so much of it drives me fucking crazy. And it, it just reveals people at their worst and their most knee jerk. And I think I've realized the extent to which, like, it makes members of my sort of political tribe dumber and less able to empathize with outsiders. And it just rewards these knee jerk radical statements. And there's shit you can say on Twitter that would get you like, kicked out of a bar or a party but everyone applauds for it because it's twitter and like there's this weird incentive structure where the people who agree or disagree strongly will let you know there could it could be 90 percent of your audience thinks you're full of shit but they're not going to say anything yeah so twitter is super weird to me in that i feel like the people who are on it the most are the most negative about it yeah yeah so do you foresee a moment where everybody's like just like fuck it we're gonna quit well, so I don't have any like hard data on users leaving. Anecdotally, a lot of my sort of friends and acquaintances in journalism who aren't assholes and who aren't like hardline ideological have left because they're like, fuck this. And I've had that impulse too. And I've seriously changed the way I've gone about being on it. So I think more and more of people who aren't online assholes have left and that leaves the assholes behind. I'm yeah. still there, so me. <laughs> it's like it's like that poker saying where if you're not sure who like the uh, yeah yeah who's the sucker, it's you, right? Yeah. If if you look around Twitter and you're not sure who the asshole is, yep. it's probably you. So maybe I'm the asshole, but I think it's driven off a lot of the people who value um, nuance, and nuance has become like a dirty word, which is so fucking stupid. But yeah, yeah. So Mickey, as the uh, Twitter enthusiast in the relationship, do you want to uh, do you want to defend this at all? Or? No, not at all. I mean, I think I think. Uh, I'll say this as someone who's muted you recently. Wait, why? Uh, muted you on Twitter. What? Uh, not because you've said anything offensive at all. It's more the volume, I'll admit. Yeah. Um, it's, I'm, but I'm realizing I pretty much don't like anybody on Twitter. <laughs> Um, I, I too, I'm the most enthusiastic person in the room on Twitter, and I too, I'm on it less and less each day. And in fact, I view it as, you know, progress when I'm on it less. Yeah, me too. I and better. I think that says something. You said this thing last time, Yoel, which it still stays with me. And there are very few things that you say that stay with me. So, I mean, this is something big. Um, and I'm forgetting it now. <laughs> it clearly had a huge kidding. impact on you. Yeah. You said this thing that I'll never forget. Where am I? I'm forgetting. I'm, this is the lead talking, I'll admit. There, okay, let me give one concrete example of how, how I think it's pernicious. Um, I, I've written a little bit about gender identity. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a really interesting subject, an interesting concept. I, I, have gen, I know this sounds like just asking questions. I have genuine philosophical questions about what gender identity is, how we should describe it, what it means to feel like a woman or man or boy or girl. You raise these questions on Twitter, which could lead to a fascinating conversation among friends if you're all out for drinks somewhere. And where people have really interesting, insightful things to say, you'll just get screamed at. And all the people who are defensive about it and who think you have some ulterior motive, I think because Twitter has so many assholes who really are on there just to like push an agenda and just, quote unquote, just ask questions. If you're the kind of sort of 
if you're the kind of person who does like to just ask questions, who's like a philosophy nerd and wants to talk about this stuff and work through thorny issues, Twitter's not the place for you because people will assume you're just being an asshole, that your questions couldn't possibly be genuine. So some of the most like frustrating instances of, um, I don't want to call it a harassment because I just block everyone, but pylons I have just been like when I've, when I've asked questions that I'm genuinely curious about and that I would love to talk about with people. And I think I made the mistake of thinking I could use Twitter for that as like a salon to discuss ideas, but like, fuck no, Twitter is horrible for that. Again, dick jokes and memes and like occasional short discussions that should be followed up online, be offline. Cause it's just, people are too defensive. People are too angry and it sucks because I, yeah, so much of the internet has turned out to be this, uh, I think people have these utopian vi images in like the 90s of what the internet would be. It would make us all better and smarter. It just seems to stoke our worst, most sadistic and masochistic tendencies. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember that. And <laughs> it's sad, man. It's like we thought that allowing everybody to talk to each other and freely oh, exchange information would be like good for us. No, <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> why? I, I mean, I mean, is it, is it ultimately in the end that like you have like the one person who is like offended or bothered by what you say and they say the thing and then people are like, yeah, I kind of mildly agree with you. And then they like that. And then the pylon starts. Um, no, I think if, if you catch the attention of any Internet mob. And look, I, sh I should sort of, I guess, check my privilege, so to speak. I have a platform. I've been incredibly blessed in like the opportunities I've had in journalism. 500 people being mad at me on Twitter is unpleasant for a day or two, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. But I'm just explaining why I'm I'm, I'm backing off from Twitter and, and interacting differently. But when you're really the target of like outrage, and I that's happened to me from both the left and the right, from different stuff I've written, it feels a lot more serious than that. It, it does, because our brains are so wired to sense disapproval and sort of exclusion or approbation like it uh is that the right word approbation is negative right? opprobrium opprobrium yeah. i think in the same like what we were talking about earlier where we're evolved to want cheeseburgers and when there's too many cheeseburgers it's bad we're evolved to sense social exclusion and so 500 people you don't even know who've never read your work tell you you're a piece of shit it hits really hard but it, it logically shouldn't because it it doesn't matter they're not my audience i'm never going to meet them i can block them but it no matter what I tell myself intellectually, it feels more intense than that. And I'm just sort of, I'm over it. I don't have time for that. Yeah, I, 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 I'm with you. I mean, even one, even just one negative comment that I receive, it, 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 can, it can like, uh, you know, spiral in my mind. And I get upset about it. And, and uh, you can imagine with someone with, with a bigger platform, it could be like hundreds of people. And uh, I will say you telling me you muted me is like... You, you seem genuinely hurt. I mute readily. Um, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I've, I've thought about this a lot. These like the, the social instincts that we have that are evolved for a small group life. Yeah. Um, and they're not, I mean, they're not evolved for even like big anonymous city living, let alone the internet where it's millions of people you'll never meet. You don't know who they are. And still, it hurts anytime a random stranger is like, I think you're a jerk. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, God. Oh, and yeah. then you cry a little inside, don't you, Mickey? I, I cry a lot outside. <laughs> um, I, cry no. when I, I cry when I'm muted by people I respect. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop. <laughs> you better unmute them before I would, I would mute the shit out of me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've actually, so my new rule with Twitter, I do still use it a, a little bit because I find it useful for science stuff. But if I see somebody's tweet and I feel that like, you know, the little like upsetness that you get or the like, the, the outrage, I guess, a little bit, they're like, mm. and it, you know, we're, I think on the same wavelength of like getting really into these like internet things where then it's like, oh, I have to read all about this controversy. Yeah. You know, I can't believe so-and-so said such and such. And then like five hours later, you're still like digging into these like, you know, uh, threads on discussion boards or whatever, being like, I can't believe that guy's such a jerk. Anyway, my new rule is whenever somebody tweets something that pushes that button for me, I'm like, unfollow. Yeah. You're done. I think yeah. I think we're both descended from people who like poured over the Torah for like shellfish rule exclusions. Yep. And that doesn't translate well to Twitter. All right, Mickey, do you have anything you want to say before we let Jesse go? Because it's nearly time for his basketball game. The dinosaurs are playing. The dinosaurs the are, are going to crush the, <laughs> the, what is it? The leprechaun? The Irish. The Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, I mean, Jesse was, I think, enlightening to, to have you here. Thank you. Um, so thank you for, 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 for teaching me um, and uh, sharing your opinions and being with us here today. It's awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I also want to say I, I want there to be more of a vicious blood feud between you guys and Very Bad Wizards. Uh, so they were they were talking a lot of shit about you. Oh, yeah. The next time I see David Pizarro, I'm just going to punch him in the back of the Please head. Please do. Yeah. Like they, the stuff they were saying about you, I can't repeat it on air. <laughs> it was <laughs> nasty. Was I don't know, but I, I dream about it at night. <laughs>